Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hello, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. Uh, with me today is Oluchi Enzimako. Uh, welcome, Oluchi. Thank you, and thank you, Carmen. Uh, that's okay. You can say Anthony too. Uh, Anthony <laughs> and I both do this podcast. Uh, he tends to be the, uh, if there's a pen and teller, he's definitely the teller part of this. He doesn't say much. Uh, and you, you don't see him that much, but uh, he's probably more important than I am. Um, welcome welcome to the podcast. Uh, I was so interested to talk with you because um, I think that the journey that you've been on and the choices that you've made, especially to to look at human resources um, as a career at this point when so much is is changing in the way that we do work and the way that we think about work um, and how important diversity and inclusion is. So I kind of want to start off with um, with you. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Nigeria. I was born in the 80s just as we were in the midst of military coups that were happening in Nigeria at the time. So I was born and raised in Nigeria and grew up in Lagos, which is one of the most popular cities in the country. Mm. It's it's actually one of the biggest economies in the world, right? I mean, it's a it's a it's a massive city, Lagos, right? Yes, it's, it is. it's thriving. What was it like? Um, do you remember growing up um, in in that type of disruption? Does your family talk about it? I mean, was it uh, was it kind of the, the crisis, an everyday crisis for people who were living there? No. And, you know, that's the very fascinating thing about growing up in against the backdrop of having so many different military leaders come in one day, they overthrow, mm-hmm. and then the next one comes in again is I think there's a lot of j- dramatic perspectives that people outside of them think about it. But you, you, for those of us who grew up in that kind of situation is you end up just creating a sense of normalcy. Mm. And growing up, life was pretty normal for me, my family, my friends. And it was pretty fun. It was, I can say it was almost like typical suburbia in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that was life. Yeah. So tell me, what did your parents do? What do they do? So my mom worked in investment banking. So she was one of the first women actually to to work when Nigeria just launched like the Lagos Stock Exchange. So she was one of the few women working wow. in asset management and investment banking at the time when the banking industry was exploding. While my dad, he had a background in management and worked in consumer packet goods like, you know, Unilever. And he worked mm-hmm. for some of the top Swiss pharmaceutical companies as as an executive. Oh wow! Yeah. So you you had people that were tied into kind of the the shaping of modern Nigeria. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny that you say it that way because it's making me think of even going back as far as my grandfather. So my grandfather mm-hmm. on my mother's side was a professor, <laughs> and. At the time when Nigeria was establishing the universities, you know, one of the oldest universities at the time, he had done his PhD in Canada. Hmm. And one of our, our prime ministers, he's, he's dead now, Inam Diazikiwe, he invited him back to establish one of the faculties at the University of Nigeria, which was just exploding then. And because my wow. grandfather had been exposed to 
the liberal arts education, not just in Canada, in the United States, he mm -hmm. came back with a very different perspective on how he felt, uh, uh, you know, university education should be established at the time. And rather than adopt the UK system, because we mm. were we were colonized by the British, he felt that the liberal arts system of the United States was what Nigeria needed to really train and grow talent. Well, yeah, and that I was that was his that was his take on it. I mean, that's fascinating because mm -hmm. I, it, it makes so much more sense now if you think about the Nigerian economy is is kind of predicated on a lot of entrepreneurialism and the, the, the British kind of education system in a lot of ways, at least as I understand it, is very much a hierarchical system, right? They, they, they have discussions with you, but they're in charge where, uh, where a lot of the, uh, the American and the Canadian is very questioning almost like Socratic, you know, they're going to debate things and you're going to challenge things. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, when I, when I think about a woman in banking <laughs> in the eighties, <laughs> I mean, anywhere you could go London, you could go New York. I, I was, I was, you know, late eighties, early nineties. I was, I was in New York city in real estate and the, you know, the misogyny, the sexism, the condescension, mm -hmm. all of those things. But then you put it in the context of an emerging economy uh -huh. and establishing the disciplines that's that's a huge um responsibility and she must have been very good at what she did to be at in that role at that time yeah it's it was and you know i remember just growing up seeing my mom go to work like you know wearing this business suit and carrying her briefcase mm -hmm. and i didn't really know what she did and one time she took us to her office and that was the first time I'd ever stepped into an elevator and gone up to one of the, the office towers on Broad Street. So, you know, how you have Wall Street yeah, and yeah. they have Bay Street in Toronto. So Lagos, the, the banking area in downtown in the commercial center was called, it's called Broad Street. And I remember just seeing her on her desk and wondering, what, what does my mom do? I don't know, but I want to sit in an office one day. That was just the first thing that just... Mm -hmm. uh, resonated with me. And it was only until later when I became, I was an older person and I was learning more about her life and her background and her career that I started to learn about what it was like for her trying to break in investment banking. And as you mentioned, you know, there are layers to, you know, there is the misogyny piece of it. But what a lot of people don't recognize is that Nigeria is also a very tribalistic society. Mm. So you have all these different ethnic groups. And she was trying to break it, yes, in a commercial center, but there was all these hierarchies around if you're from this tribe, there are sure. only certain levels or roles that you can get. So she also faced that tribalism as well, trying oh to gosh. break into that sector. And there's like 500 plus languages spoken in Nigeria, yeah, 250 right? 250 so, ethnic oh, groups. Right. And we're okay. not even sure how many languages, but you could be wow. right that there's so many, what we call languages or dialects. Dialects, And that's yeah. where, yes, yeah. So you're yeah. right. But but that's that, the thing that I find with people who don't either study Africa or don't go is that it's a, it's a continent that is so vast in terms of size, but also in terms of culture in a way that almost defies description because within Nigeria you're going to have you know 200 different tribes yeah. is you know it's the complexity of that and the ability to get alignment <laughs> across yeah. all of those differences is insane so what 
What was it like around the dinner table? You have a grandfather who essentially helped establish the education system in the country. You've got two parents who are helping to shape the current and the future nature of business and commerce. What was it like on a Sunday or a Saturday? It was um, so unfortunately, I never got to know my grandfather. Mm. He passed away just before the Nigerian Civil War started. And so my parents lived through the Nigerian Civil War, what is referred to as the Biafran War, because mm. it was the Igbo trying to secede from the rest of Nigeria and control their own destiny and their own resources. Mm -hmm. At least that's the narrative. And Chino Achebe covered it in his book, There Was a Country. So yes. around our dinner table, much of it was learning about what was it like for my parents to survive the civil war and to start to rebuild their lives as Igbos, you know, growing up in the eastern part of the country and then moving to Lagos, which was the commercial capital. And then just learning about, because my parents, my dad is a, is a history buff, so we would just mm -hmm. talk about, you know, different things of history. And because of he worked for a lot of global companies, he started to travel a lot. So he would just come back and share about the places that he had been. So growing up around the dinner table was really just about learning about life and, you know, books that we read and TV shows that we watched. So that was it. I, like people might think that's just this, you know, but it was really like just normal connecting with my parents and just trying to learn about them. Well, but I, I think that when they, uh, when you have parents that encourage ideas and discussion, you tend to raise confident children. When you, um, when you were in school, um, you you went you went to boarding schools. In, I did. In Nigeria. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a whole nother culture. That's a whole different kind of universe of rules and responsibilities and things they don't tell you. And what was that like? And and did that kind of um, the confidence that you got from your family did that help kind of navigate that system? Yes, it's funny that you mentioned about boarding school because boarding school was a huge part of the culture in Nigeria growing up. And I do think it was a remnant of the British mm -hmm. where, you know, it started out with the missionary schools and then most of the federal universities that were funded by the federal government were established as boarding schools. So mm -hmm. I did go to a boarding school and our boarding schools, you can go starting from what you, what you call junior high here in the United States. Mm -hmm. We call it like, you know, junior secondary school and senior secondary school. So I went to boarding school from around the age of 11 up until mm. when I graduated from, from high school. And I went to an all-girls boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> so it was something that, that was just part of the norm. You know, my mom and dad, they went to boarding school. I mm. went to boarding school. My twin sister and I went to the same boarding school. My older sister, my brother. So everyone in our household, we all went to boarding school. And it's a very, and Carmen, you're right, it's a very different experience. Because you're going when you're young, and you're often going to boarding school that is in a completely different state mm. or completely different city. And you have to navigate not being around your parents. And then, as you said, there's all these rules, there's all this structure, and there's responsibilities that are placed on you depending on what, what grade you're in. Well, in a lot of ways, they, they almost um, design it so you're going to make mistakes so that they can then kind of exert the authority that they need to exert on people, right? I mean, they do that on purpose. 
we could do a whole podcast on boarding school. <laughs> I'm sure we could. I'm sure we could. Uh, but but you went. Did did your did your twin sister go with you? Yes, my older sister. When when my older sister is like three years older than us, so she went to the same school that my twin sister and I ended up going to. Mm. So yes, my twin sister and I went to the same school. So so they 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 knew your family from your older sister. Was she uh, was she somebody you know that you that you had to uh, get out from under her shadow, or was she somebody that um, kind of made it a little bit easier for you? Mm. It was mixed because, you know, there's a dynamic in boarding school where if you come in and what we call, you couldn't use, if you're in senior high and you're in junior high, you couldn't call senior students by name. You had to use mm -hmm. senior in front of my name. And if your sister was someone who was known as a bully and you came in, mm -hmm. her reputation might influence how you know, people that were lower than her would end up treating you. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, my my older sister, she's an amazing person, very calm, very quiet. And so she didn't have a, the reputation as someone who was mean or was a bully. Mm -hmm. And maybe that might have helped. But what is fascinating is that my twin sister and I were actually very popular, mm -hmm. which is weird. And I don't even know why, but we ended up being very well known in our school. And we ended mm -hmm. up being involved in you know, curriculum activities, we were prefects, you know, like when you oh, watch yeah. the Harry mm -hmm. Potter movies, yes, oh, yeah. so we were prefects and we were very much involved in, in school. And I think that also shaped my, my, my level of confidence in being a leader and being given responsibilities when you're still in like, you know, secondary school. And that, you said something that I, I want to think about more. Um, there's, a, there's a point in your life where I mean, and everybody faces this, where they're concerned, they're intimidated, they're nervous, et cetera. One of the best ways to exert control is to be a part of the group of people who shape the culture of a place. And so clearly your parents did that, your grandfather did that. And that confidence when you get there by becoming a prefect, you actually become kind of part of somebody who can who can help you know, choose whether this is going to be a crueler class or a more compassionate class. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I say that because my friend who went to British boarding schools, who was from Zimbabwe, um, he became head boy. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, no, I'm not stopping with just being a prefect. I'm getting to the top of the house. Uh, and he was Sri Lankan, you know, in a, mm -hmm. in a white British boarding school. So he, he dealt with a lot of, you know, racism and horrible names that were hur hurled at him. Um, what did you what did you learn coming out of the boarding school experience that um, that people would be surprised or maybe um, would would not think you would get from that? Um, that's a very interesting question because as you're asking that question, I almost have to center it on the fact that I did not just go to boarding school, but I went to a boarding school that was single sex. So in mm -hmm. terms of what I learned, I almost feel like I have to bring that layer into it because <laughs> when you don't have boys around you for mm -hmm. that long, there's an element of distraction that is taken away from you. Sure. And you almost become free to define your personality mm -hmm. as a girl. And what I learned from that is that we had this while there was all this structure and there were rules, like we couldn't wear makeup, you know, we all had to wear uniforms. Mm -hmm. But there was almost this freedom to to explore your interests without wondering whether or not you are going to impress anybody. Mm -hmm. 
and you could yeah. be someone who could dive into your academics and you would be respected for that. If you wanted to do sports, you would be respected for that. So I think one of the things I took away from that experience was you do quickly learn independence. Mm. But I think as a girl going to a school where there was not a lot of, there were no boys pretty much, I think it taught me about how to define my personality separate from that. I mean, Even though there's all that pressure of, of being, you know, girls, you want to still impress each other. But taking away that lay, I think, was something that I found very interesting when I look back on it. That's huge because people spend their whole lives trying to find their authentic self. Mm-hmm. And when you're in that period where you're, you're actually forming your personality, you're forming your character traits, to do it in an unselfconscious way is a huge gift. It is. I've um, I've had I've had friends who've gone to um, you know single sex schools, and um, and and family members, and they've they've said this a similar thing. You know, if you're having a bad day and it's single sex, um, you don't feel like there's going to be half the population that could um, tease you or to you know um, kind of talk about the difference that you have, um, and you also learn the power of you know friendship that way. You know, mm-hmm. same sex friendships in some ways can be um universal you can you can use that for your your entire life um do you do you stay in touch with anybody that you went to school with oh yes i do i have some of my friends that we stay in touch we even have a facebook group and we have a mm-hmm. whatsapp group even though at some point i think i pulled out of the whatsapp group because you know girls we can too have just I mean, too on. many groups. Work on people we just can't keep doing this yeah so no, but I, I do keep in touch with some of my some of my good friends that we all grew up together like in the whole boarding school experience and what mm-hmm. i think facebook and all these social media platforms have done is that it's also made me connect with some of the friends that i lost yeah at least see what's happening with their lives that that part fascinates me, especially with Africa, because there is a sense of uh, diaspora. There is a, a lot of um, of feeling in certain countries, even someplace as thriving as Nigeria or Lagos, that if if you want to see if you can make it outside of that context, you find a lot of people um, go to different countries to build a career, and some come back and and some don't. What made you decide to go to Canada knowing that your grandfather had had you had some family history here yeah it's so at the time when my parents went to university in Nigeria the universities were fantastic they were Mm -hmm. very like academically strong but with the military coming in Mm -hmm. there started to be almost like this degradation of the standards of education Mm -hmm. and whereas my parents got the kind of education that really set them up for success, it really started to change when the military came in. So by the mm. time I was an adult, I, I actually started university in Nigeria before I left. My parents, I think, just took stock and assessed the situation and said, you know what, we have our two youngest, so that was me and my twin. Mm. They're not yet far along. We can pull them out, see maybe they, there's a better opportunity to send them to Canada or the United States. And so we ended up, so that was the decision that my parents made. I think it was them just having the sense of foresight that things were changing in a way in terms of the ed- the quality of education. And I think they just wanted to give us a better chance at success by investing in, in, in our tertiary education. So they pulled us out and then mm-hmm. we looked at Canada. Canada seemed to be much more affordable. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so we ended up making the move to, to, to Winnipeg, Manitoba. 
so so yeah, I mean uh, it it seems to me pretty obvious that a military doesn't want a uh, a thriving uh intellectual culture that could challenge their authority. So I, it makes sense to me that they would disrupt some of that culture. Um, but when you when you make that shift to a completely different culture, when you go to Manitoba, um, what was it like to adjust to that? And, and did you and your sister go to the same university? Yes, we did. In fact, my twin sister and I were like, we were, we've been joined at the hip since we were born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. when we both went to Canada together and there was, a, there was excitement, but mm-hmm. I think when we came in, I don't think we were prepared for the culture shock of being mm-hmm. in a completely different country, different way of life, a very different culture. And people who nece- not necessarily had had a lot of experience with people from different cultures and so it was mixed in that there were a lot of international students that had started to see Canada as an option and so Mm. there was already almost like a bargaining Nigerian student population there students from you know South Korea students from China so when we came in there was already this community forming and so we plugged into that but you know you also tell yourself that part of your leaving your country is that you want to expand your you know your perspective and you know build friends that are different from you but I will say Carmen that when I look back on it it wasn't as easy as we thought Mm. and I know people often talk about Canada as you know being this very open friendly place it wasn't as no. Easy as, no. as, 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 and, and, I, and I'm being honest about that, yeah. that it wasn't really what it seems, you know, and that that was tough. No, I think, and, and I think that the, the more you get into the more isolated areas of Canada, the more you get the same type of tribalism. You know, mm-hmm. there, are, there are people that they don't want outsiders or, or worse, you know, they, they have a kind of a conscious um, myopic view. Mm-hmm. That you must not be sophisticated, or that you must must not have the same level of education, et cetera. And the condescension, I find, is what I I was not good at watching people condescend to my friends who grew up in other places. Mm-hmm. I it it really bothered me to see that type of insensitivity. Um, how do you handle that when you're eighteen? Yeah. What do you What do you do? I mean, do you do you ignore it? Do you try to educate? Um, or is there a certain point? You know, I always say that you know that you can make something idiot proof, but the world will make a better idiot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so there's, there's certain times, and I, Anthony always laughs at me, but I say you can be ignorant or arrogant, but you have to choose one. You can't mm-hmm. be both, and and that's what kills me with prejudice, mm-hmm. whether it's racism or it's misogyny or it's you know. Uh, anti-LBGTQ, um, that combination of being ignorant of something but not wanting to learn mm-hmm. and adapt, I mean, that's deadly. Do you, do you, is that what got you into HR? Is that what got you into looking at the, the science behind this? It how people behave? How people be? So I will say that I approached it in two ways. I think that I... I almost I chose the safe option, and I'm speaking for myself because if you ever got the chance to interview my twin sister, I would want mm-hmm. her to speak for herself. But I chose the safe option by just embracing the Nigerian community of international students that were there, whether I was mm-hmm. through the church community and through the African Students Association of which I was a part of. And I think that first initial re- rejection of not feeling like people wanted to welcome you, 
maybe it made it just pushed me towards okay you know what I'm just going to embrace what I already know yeah and and I'm not trying to paint that community in a bad light because I had some amazing you know professors I had some mm-hmm. few friends but if I really look back on the diversity of my friendships when I was at the University of Manitoba it was not very diverse mm-hmm. and I think part of that is also on me so I think how I approached it was I just embraced the familiar well, sure, but, 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 so many, but so many other parts of your life were unfamiliar, right? I mean, you can have friends mm-hmm. in, that are displaced like you, that are grappling with you know, a very different culture and how the culture reacts. So in a way, it is a bit of a protection, right? It's kind of like a shelter from the storm. Mm-hmm. Um, but even within that group, I'm sure you were all from different cultures. Oh yes, we different were. places. So yeah. you know, it's funny that you you may say um, that you you didn't expand your sense of diversity, um, but I can tell you, I, I kind of had the same thing um, when I went away to university. There was a dorm; it was a special interest dorm, and it had people from all over the world and um, very very um, kind of humanities based um, music section, acting section, visual arts, philosophy, etc. It was not a hard science place, <laughs> and we isolated ourselves from the engineering students and from the athletic students because we didn't feel like a part of their tribe. Mm. You know, and I think that part to me is different than people who um, who are part of a homogeneous group and try to maintain that homogeneous status, right? You know, I think mm-hmm. that's different. That's a that's a, a lack of appreciation. So I want I want to shift into something because you went from there and you eventually got a master's degree at Cornell. How mm-hmm. was Cornell? Was it different? Was that it is, That is the amazing thing about Cornell is that I only, so I graduated from Cornell 2 years ago, 2019. Mm-hmm. And Carmen, it was almost like it was a do-over for me. <laughs> because when I went to Cornell, so my program is a very, it's a very small program, very well-recognized program, very small. And I was the only black girl in my program at Cornell, like in my cohort, and then mm-hmm. the second cohort that came in. And someone might look at that and say, I don't know how my experience is going to be, but it ended up being one of the best experiences that I've had. Mm. Because it not it forced me to step out of my comfort zone because I now had to make friends hmm. that were not that did not look like me. So there was no safety zone for me to run into. And it ended up just being this very amazing experience that I look back on it now and it seems almost ironic because I was coming into the United States at a time when against the backdrop of all this stuff that is happening. Hmm. And I found the commuter Cornell very welcoming just the friendliness the embrace of you know people invite it's 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 very ironic honestly i well, speak about my memories there and i sometimes i want to cry i say I'm the same way about the the undergraduate experience that i had and I, I went to graduate school as well um but it was almost like the inverse from what you had um graduate school there was much more um isolated and homogeneous and and not as dynamic. But I want to talk about something else you, you said, and I, and, I, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but you know diversity is one of the one of our guests said is diversity is is um, 
you know, being invited to the dance. But inclusion is dancing with people. <laughs> and, you know, when you, you know, the, the University of Manitoba might have been diverse, but it wasn't very inclusive, mm. right? It didn't make you feel included. But Cornell gave you that opportunity. And maybe part of it was you wanting to join that. That's the part I keep coming back to when we talk about DNI. Mm -hmm. um, to me, I, I've learned over 30 years in business that the more diverse a group is, the more likely we are to solve a problem and the more likely we are to find an innovation. Absolutely. Because we're triangulating experiences and background. Do you, let me kind of put it in context of HR. We have a massive changeover in generations. We have baby boomers that are exiting in epic numbers. We have a small group of incredibly charming and handsome late middle age Gen Xers like myself who are hanging on, you know. By a thin thread. By a thin thread. We're a small group and we're bitter. Whatever, whatever and ever, amen. That's our prayer. Um, and then we have this massive millennial Gen, uh, Gen Z. Um, this is an HR um, kind of uh, proving ground. How do you approach what is really maybe the most humanistic of, of disciplines in the business world, you know, how to create an inviting culture, how to put in disciplines that kind of do more than count the number of heads or the, you know, the color of people's skin, but really think about how to build a more competitive and more diverse culture. How do you do that? That is a very tall question. And yeah. I speak as someone who I'm not even well versed in the DNI space, but you know mm -hmm. I've I've gotten to see how challenging it is for companies to do, and companies have not gotten it right. Mm. What I will say is that it starts by asking very very tough and uncomfortable questions. Mm -hmm. Why does our leadership team look this way? What are we doing wrong or right? And what is the data telling us about how talent moves within our organization? It's, it's a very dynamic and a very complex challenge and question because whether we like it or not, human beings, and as someone who I've always been fascinated by psychology, and I think when I went to business school, that was what led me down the HR path, is that human beings, we tend to have a very zero-sum mentality in the way we approach mm. resources, in the way we approach opportunities or access. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you begin to challenge the mindset that, you know, the pie can be expanded. There's <laughs> room for everyone. Oh my God. I love that you said that. Um, I, I have been pounding the table on that. People in, in older, more um, atrophied cultures mm -hmm. will spend in ordinate amounts of time fighting over who gets the biggest slice of the pie. Yes. And when you bring in the concept that we could actually grow it to a much bigger pie, yeah. they resist it wholeheartedly because, you know, that, that actually puts the onus on them stretching themselves yes. and succeeding, right? And they're good at the game of taking, you know, more from a static pie than yes. taking the risk. Like, why don't we bake a bigger pie? Like, maybe we need yes. more flour, maybe we need more sugar, mm -hmm. maybe we need more yeast. And that's, I don't know. And I don't know how you how you start to penetrate that type of thinking. 
Well, you you have a piece of this in here that I'm fascinated by because you got a master's degree in industrial and labor relations. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the um, the head of Youth Build last week, um, and they take adjudicated young uh, people and they train them to be green contractors. So these people have been in the system and they're now kind of helping them build a new life. And he said something profound to me, which was that intelligence is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. Yes. And when I think about that and, and bringing back the dignity of work, yeah. you know, my father was a, was a blue collar welder and pipe fitter, but he ended up as a nuclear um, welder and the general foreman to build nuclear power plants. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, that, that role from $8 an hour soldering, you know, plumbing to designing the most complex, difficult systems that had to be x-rayed and had to operate perfectly. You know, that was a that was a career path that you would never have explained or explicated anywhere else. No one would ever teach you that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that when you look at the dignity of work, there's really an opportunity here to to look at all manner of work, whether it's blue collar or white collar, um, green collar. Now, I think they're talking about in terms of sustainability. Mm-hmm. What do you see? What do you see on the inside of the HR kind of labor side that maybe most people don't think about? <clears throat> what I can say is happening. What I see on the inside is, and it's something that I studied. Uh, I took one of the, t- took a class by one of my favorite professors at, at Cornell, Professor Litwin, is. Automation has added another layer of complexity to this. Mm. So what we are seeing right now, and what I predict is happening now, is that the pace at which technology is changing jobs is happening very fast. And there's a lot of fear around what jobs are going to be left. And the people that are going to be impacted by this automation, can they be retrained? Can we upskill them? Are there higher level complex jobs that will now be done? Whereas what they call the three days in automation, you know, dirty, the dirty jobs, like what happens Mm -hmm. to those when they are taken away by automation or robots? And so what's happening right now is it's coming. And we in the HR space or in talent management, we need to start thinking about what happens to the people that are left behind and how do we either retrain them or prepare them for success somewhere else. So that that's fascinating for me because so I I've worked in advanced manufacturing, um, high tech manufacturing, um, high throughput um, B2B manufacturing, chemical industry, et cetera. And you're hundred percent right. And what you used to do was run out into the machinery and twist an, uh, you know, a, a, a valve or, or move a knob and you would, you would really have almost like the art of manufacturing. Now you might only have four people, sometimes even two people in a control room and they're looking at, you know, six Sigma statistical modeling going in front of their eyes live or, you know, in the case of a, of a, uh, a shingles plant. They have, uh, you know, digital cameras. Whenever the line breaks, every camera goes off and it tells you exactly what went wrong in an instant on your screen. Mm-hmm. But what it takes is it, it takes people to in, in these jobs to be better thinkers. Yes. To see patterns. And I think that um, having shop <laughs> in schools is a great thing. 
<laughs> you know, because it does help people solve problems. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a presentation called Shift Happens, and I'm gonna I might even post it to the um to the website here because you're hitting it spot on. I'm gonna read you three slides, and I want you to react to what they say. We are currently preparing students for jobs that don't exist yet using technologies that haven't been invented in order to solve problems we don't even know are problems yet. I think I've heard that quote before. That's insane. Mm -hmm. I mean, just the idea that social media has created a series of problems with children having anxiety mm -hmm. and that whole issue that you said growing up in a in kind of a, a single sex uh, school system kind of prevented you from that constant judgment and that dynamic. Yeah. Children are growing up in that dynamic in a younger and younger age. <laughs> how do you how do you grapple with that at this point in your career? You're going to see the entire evolution. Do you find that people are listening more to you in your background? than maybe they had in the past? Do you Are there certain things that they'll listen more to you about and, and others that they don't? Uh, and I will speak, you know, for, for and I will speak in the context of, you know, my, my profession and the people who work in there. I do think that a lot of leaders now are very concerned about talent management mm -hmm. and how do we get the best out of our people to drive us towards, you know, whatever our North Star is or whatever, what are we trying to accomplish as an organization? Mm -hmm. So I do think that what's happened over the years is that HR had shifted from this very, we're personnel, we help with punching the clock, putting time in, to you have an actual seat at the table and we are going to be turning, we are, we're going to be looking to you to partner with us to help us solve this problem that is coming. How are we going to attract talent? Baby boomers are leaving. And so that's what's happening now is we need to be thinking about this very holistically. We need to be thinking about this every single day. And so to your, to your question, the questions that are being asked, we are not sure yet what the answers are. But but you but you know that you have to ask them right yes. because you see this uh, whether they call it a silver tsunami right into this washing this baby boomer generation away, um, you, but it also gives a huge opportunity for people who are millennials or Gen Z to do more at a younger age. Mm -hmm. You know if you if you look back two generations three generations. You see people from the greatest generation during World War II or just after that, where they're 19 or 20 years old in a house. Um, you know, they they have a wherewithal. How how important is it to to let people of this generation know that um, they may be getting the reins sooner than they think? That I mean, and I'm part of that generation, you know, as a millennial, mm -hmm. because. I look at my peers and I talk to them all the time. And, you know, now I'm like the resident HR person in my, in my house. I'm like, guys, I'm still somewhat mid tier low in my career. Like, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes you ask me all these difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I, I am, when I talk to my peers and I keep telling them that you, the change is coming sooner than you think. And are you going to be ready for that? Because you might be asked to take on, more earlier than you know your parents mm -hmm. and whether or not the question is do we have the professional and emotional maturity to take on those responsibilities if they're going to be dropped on our plate sooner rather than later and that's where that piece around how do we prepare our like you know my peers or even younger 
for jobs that they are not that they don't yet exist yet and what does that mean yeah. do we start putting them in stretch assignments earlier do we start putting them in micro projects to train them and develop them sooner and i think um, companies are recognizing that there is also a time factor here and we have to be moving fast when we are thinking about development and reskilling our people and and i think you know i agree with you wholeheartedly and i think you're you're right um you know, I got lucky in that I went into consulting when I didn't know anything, which, you know, if you think about that for a little bit, that probably sums up consulting completely. Um, but but the idea of being a consultant when you don't know much about business is is pretty interesting because I spent three and a half years asking people, well, what do we do next? Mm-hmm. What do we do next? And there was one day about six months into this where I said, um, you know, I've done all the research. There's I can't find anything to answer this question. And the head of the consulting firm just laughed and patted me on the shoulder. And she said, oh, yeah, this is the part where you make it up. And I I went home and I'm like, okay, now I have to go make something up. And I made it up and about maybe 60% of what I wrote down got in. And it changed my thinking. Because I was like, okay, I may not have my name on it, but my ideas can be used. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you know the surgeon mentality: watch one, do one, teach one, is a good thing. You know, I had a friend who was in South Sudan and had to do surgeries and um, use a relief worker. And I said, "How how could you do an amputation, you know, live with no anesthesia?" And he said, "Well, if I didn't do anything, they were going to die. Mm-hmm. So I at least gave him a shot, and he lived. So yay me, uh, yay him." Um, there's something to be said about putting people in a position where they can gain that level of confidence, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's combat, sometimes it's you know emergencies, crises, et cetera. Do you think COVID has done that for the entire world? <laughs> I mean, has it put us in a different mindset about what we can deal with and what we can overcome? Yes, it has. And you know, I even see it with the way we had to immediately shift the way we work and completely deploy people to work from home. So my company had actually had remote workers, you know, they've been at it for like 10 years, Mm -hmm. but the amount, the volume of employees that they had to deploy to work from home once COVID-19 hit was, was amazing. And I think the turnaround to do that was, was ridiculous in trying Mm -hmm. to get people up and running because you know the vast majority of your workforce has to work from home. And I think a lot of companies were grappling with that. And it talks about the, it, 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 I think it makes us think about that sometimes there are no perfect conditions. And mm. when situations are ambiguous, you just have to throw yourself into the deep end and you might figure out what stroke you need to use then. You might think, oh, mm-hmm. we've always used the breaststroke, but now we have to swim sideways. And that, so your earlier comment around, sometimes you have to place people in unfamiliar situations without any prior context or precedence, and then you start setting new ones. And COVID-19 has completely changed that for a lot of companies. Aluchi, we have the name of your book. <laughs> the name what of your book <laughs> is Swimming Sideways. <laughs> And you can thank me later. Okay. You'll get but some of the proceeds. That's it. Just some. some. <laughs> I'm just, I don't need a lot. Just a little taste and I'm fine. But no, you nailed it in a way that I don't think anybody has with me with COVID. And, and, and it's so funny because swimming sideways is perfect 
first of all, you could look weird. Um, <laughs> people are probably not expecting it, but you get there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it is about, it's not about thrive, it's about survive. Yeah. You know, so you can fight again. And and what I found is that um the 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 politics, the dynamics, all of those other things that happen in a live setting in an interaction, we do miss those. We're you know, we're we're social creatures, right? We yes. like to connect. But there's another part of it that says over distance, um, we collapse time and space. Yes, we do. So now you need to meet with people, you just meet with them, no matter where they are. And I think that in a way, that lack of um, maybe self-consciousness can give people an opportunity to throw a big idea out. You know, you're only on a Zoom call or you're only on a teleconference or you're only through email. And I like that, but I think it's going to be years before we actually completely understand what this did. You know, whether it's people with anxiety or depression or disruptive, you know, uh, workforce practices. We're almost at the end of the podcast and I always ask two questions. So I'm going to ask them now. So what? What do you see from your diverse background, from your point of view, from your your age and your education? What do you see that is likely to be fascinating or useful or interesting 10 years from now um, when you look back on the last 12 to 14 months? I do think that's a very interesting question. And the first thing I do see is, one, we talked about globalization before, and I think we always looked at it in terms of people crossing physically into borders. Mm. And now I think the layer of how we think about globalization has changed in that you can now hire someone in Dubai and your company is in Lenchenstein, for instance. Maybe that's, that's a shift that we're going to see where globalization in terms of how we think of work and how we hire people and we bring talent in and out, hmm. that is going to shift in a completely different way. And I don't know, does that provide more opportunities for developing economies or does that create hmm. a negative dynamic? Because while we are all working from home, it's also shown that there is an inequality in the types of jobs that people can mm. do working from home and the privilege that comes with that. So it's there is, is also kind of showed that demarcation of, I have the privilege to work from home, but for a lot of people, that's not the case. And what do we do with that? Well, and those unintended consequences, right? That drives yes. the next round of, of problems. Um, but but I like the way that you're you're framing this, which... You know, I, I believe that in some ways the distance that we've put between ourselves, um, because it's universal, has actually given people the opportunity to get closer together. Mm -hmm. Because you know we're using technology more fluidly, we might be um, putting people on a more even playing field in terms of you know being on a meeting or being involved in something. But a manufacturing site still has to be a manufacturing exactly. site. Exactly. You know, and those people don't always have access to the same career path or trajectory. So so tell me after the the so what, what do you see really changing? What do you see, you know, what do you think is going to happen next in the next month, 5 months, 8 months? What's the world going to be like as we start to get back to I won't say normal, but a, a new normal? Carmen, that's a very, that's that's not a fair question because you're asking me to pull out my non-existent crystal ball. 
ah. and tell the people that might be listening to this podcast all your cheese predictions. Oh, I'm, and that's I'm, not fair. <laughs> I'm, I, I have no problem being wildly inaccurate with my predictions. I thought we were all going to be, you know, taking a pill for dinner by this point, and there was a robot that was going to dress us because I, I watched the Jetsons a lot when I was growing <laughs> up. Um, but no, I mean, I, I think I, I want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Um, just give me something that's that you think is going to be different or unique or um, or exciting for you coming out of this. I think what is going to be exciting for me that I'm excited to see is leaders being more open-minded about how they see productivity Mm. and not measuring it in the traditional ways that we used to do before Mm. of recognizing that just because someone is in the office all the time doesn't mean that they are productive. So I think that's that shift. We have to embrace that shift sooner rather than later. We have Mm -hmm. to. The other thing I see happening as well is there is going to be a migration shift where people might no longer be tied to locations. And I'm saying this because this is stuff that is already out there. If you if you watch mm. the news or if you're reading all these publications that looks at the future of work. So that's going to happen where uh, a company that is headquartered in San Francisco does not need to be tied to the talent pool of San Francisco. Yeah. Now they can branch out and they can hire people who are not there. They might make a decision that maybe makes sense to have some of their, you know, creatives all be in the same room. And that's who's to say that. What Mm. we will see to merge is that we're going to see a very hybrid type of arrangement where we'll see some part of the workforce be fully remote. Mm. A few will come in every single day. But there is that middle, that middle that is going to grow fatter and fatter, where it's going to be people who say, you know Mm. what, I want the flexibility to have a hybrid arrangement of work. Now, what that does for training, what that does for company culture is yet to be seen, but I think companies are trying to figure it out as they go along. And there is also a ripple effect of what does this do for developing and emerging economies in West Africa, you know, in, in, in Asia, mm. where we are still trying to get people connected to the internet. Are they going to be left behind or is this going to be what lights the fire to say, how do we get internet access to those communities because work is changing? But see that, and that's the, that's the part that I'm most hopeful about. What I, what I hope about Africa and not just sub-Saharan Africa, but, but the, the entire continent is that they can leapfrog over the traditional steps that, you know, Western democracies have mm-hmm. faced, all that incrementalism. Mm-hmm. And there's an opportunity. I'd, I had read somewhere that they were starting to um, to knit together the migratory um, protected lands across multiple countries, so mm-hmm. that you would have these massive pathways of migrating animals that would be, you know, protected environments. And the idea that that Africa can do things that other continents can't, and that these diverse cultures can create microeconomies that can thrive, but you don't lose the diversity. It doesn't become, you know just an amalgam of all these other places. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's possible? I mean, do you do you see that type of passion um, in Lagos and Nigeria? And do, do you do you go back a lot? I've gone back recently. You know, for the most part mm-hmm. when I was in Canada, was, there was this space of time where I didn't go back at all. Mm-hmm. And now I've gone back. I went back in 2017 Mm-hmm. And um, 
what another thing that drives me to really take my career seriously is because one of the things I studied in school was leadership. And that mm-hmm. has been that has been the multi multi-million dollar question about Africa is mm. this question of leadership. And it's going to take a very, very different generation of leaders that can drive Africa forward towards their own self-determination. Mm. And I'm mixed on it because I'm I'm partly a very optimistic person, but I also tend to be also deeply pragmatic. And mm-hmm. I think that in my short time on light, on earth, I do think that people get the leaders that they deserve. <laughs> and I think that, you know, Africans to some extent, we have to actually ask ourselves, what kind of leaders do we really, really want? Because we keep pointing the finger, but we have to sit down and ask ourselves that have we truly did we get the leaders that we truly deserved? And it's going to take a tremendous amount of leadership and political will to move Africa towards that place of self-determination. So Achebe has a book called The Ant Hills of the Savannah. Mm. I don't know if you've ever read that. But read it as a young girl. Very yeah. Now my memory about it is spotty, so I'm trying That's to okay. get I'm back on my chin. Okay. <laughs> so on chapter four, I'd like to know, was the protagonist now? Um, what I... What I found interesting about that book was that um, you, there's an inflection point. When you put somebody in a position of power, they have the choice to either respect what the position is or to have it define who they are. Mm-hmm. And when you, know, you look at you know, somebody like Mandela who, um, you know, after he was released, he was walking through a market and there was a guy who saw him and kind of turned his head away. And Mandela with his team sat down to eat lunch there and uh, he asked them to call that guy over. And the guy sat next to him and he was, he was literally shaking. And Mandela talked to him for a while and they knew each other. He said, I've known him. And the guy got up and went away and they said, it's really a shame that he was so intimidated. He was, a, he was an older white man. Mm-hmm. And he said, he, he, was my, uh, he was my guard and he used to urinate on me and he used to spill my food. Mm-hmm. and you know, he said, and, and what I was trying to do is to tell him we have to move past this. And you, you see somebody who does that and says, well, the position that I'm in is not my position. The mm-hmm. position that I'm in is I, I'm a steward of that. And I, and I think that when, when leaders can do that and put themselves second, we have an opportunity. Yes. But any leader that puts themselves above what their responsibility is, is just kind of letting in the corruption, yes. right? And that concerns me when the stakes are so huge. Yeah. You know, I we didn't have a chance to get into it, but you know, it's it's the countries that come in to invest in Africa. Some do it in a way that is enabling, and others do it in a way that's exploitive. Exploitive, yes. And I get very, very concerned um, when I think about the opportunity because I think your generation is the most diverse. And, it, and it's also the most aware. <laughs> you know, you have the context to understand what the value of this stuff is. So I always talk about a way homer. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you had an opportunity in the things that you feel strongly about, that you wanted people to think in terms of the concept of being an ally, what's something that you want people to know, either, you know, as a woman or as, you know, a Nigerian, as a Canadian, as, a, as a, an HR professional? What's something that you want people to understand, um, maybe that they don't, about who you are? About who I am. Or what you believe. Or what I believe. 
it's going to sound so simplistic, honestly, but I do believe that I've always been someone who, when I, when I meet someone for the first time, what always is at the back of my mind is treat that person with respect, give that person understanding, learn about who they are, what motivates them. And then that way it allows you to connect with them on a deeper level. That's always been my value system that you have to respect people from where they are coming from and set aside your prejudices and just listen, just shut up and listen. (laughs) I try to live by that value system every single day. I love that. That's perfect. Um, I, I, I have a similar one in that um, I always say that content isn't king, context is king. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what the raw information is. I want to understand where people are coming from because that's what helps me understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you have a very humanist approach to this, right? You know, it's about the individual and what their value is. Um, this has been delightful. I could go on for another hour, but I, I'm always mindful of people's time. Um, I think that what I like about you Um, And what I find fascinating is that you are looking at these issues with a much longer eye. And I think that the disciplines that you've studied, you you couldn't have picked better disciplines for what's about to come. Mm. Uh, And it makes me feel good that there's somebody who's that thoughtful and that good a listener who's looking at these things. So I I really want to thank you. And I'm glad that that Anthony uh, helped connect us because I think you've you've opened people's eyes to a, a bunch of different issues not least of which is you know what boarding schools are like <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for considering me like a, a guest on your podcast like when Anthony reached out to me I, the first thing I thought to myself was like why not and I hope I have something meaningful to share and I'm still growing even just in my journey so I was looking forward to this as well Oh, no, it's wonderful. And I, and I think, you know, people will, will really enjoy it. And, if, and it'll get them asking questions, which I, I can't think of any better thing to do than to get people to think. So thank you. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you, Anthony. So that's all the time we have. Um, if you have any questions for either of us, please send them in. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. And I want to thank you for participating. I think this was uh, just a, a blast. Um, so that's all the time we have. Um, And as always, uh, thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time.